Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. Within 24 hours, I, I, I was stunned. I was unconscious. My mental focus was staggered. I went from a captain of a mega yacht, a luxury mega yacht, cruising the world. Within 24 hours, I was thrown in, John, to the worst place you could imagine. That took a while to process. Michael Churchward is a renowned mega yacht captain who has broken several world records and worked on the high seas for one of the wealthiest men in America, a businessman he deeply admires and respects and simply calls Mr. Orr in his new book. It's Michael's account of his harrowing real-life story of Michael's imprisonment abroad for crimes he never committed. Churchward credits Mr. Orr and other major figures, the actor Dustin Hoffman and the late presidential candidate Ross Perot, for helping free Churchward from the hellholes, danger and squalor of prisons in Turkey and Greece, where Churchward was held altogether for a year on these crimes he never committed. It's all in Michael Churchward's riveting new book, God Waits Outside, which has been nominated for several book awards. You just heard Michael in a wee clip from my interview coming up. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. Michael Churchward lives happily today in Pompano Beach, Florida. It's a long way from the rat-infested isolation and human degradation of prisons in Turkey and Greece on phony charges, cut off from the rest of the world as Turkey and the United States engaged in a standoff over this innocent sea captain, Michael Churchward will tell me in a wee moment about his harrowing tale of endurance, his discovery of inner strength, and his faith in God, and about his amazing dash to freedom. I thought life inside Cirque Prison was so diabolical, it couldn't have even gotten any worse. It got enormously worse in Cirque Prison. Cirque Prison... Is, is very infamous and, and well-known to Amnesty International as one of the very few prisons around the globe that are very highly suspected of human rights violations and abuses. I witnessed it firsthand. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Michael Churchward, a world-renowned yachtsman who has a new book out, God Waits Outside, on his real-life story about how he suddenly found himself locked up in notorious prisons in Turkey and then Greece, and his heart-thumping path to freedom, and all because of crimes he never committed. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Michael, welcome to the show. You're in sunny Florida today. What's it like there? I'm up here in the Northeast near New York City, and you know all about New York City, but the COVID and shutdowns, crazy place. We're warm. In my beach out front here, I'm looking at the water now, is uh, packed with spring breakers. It, it, <laughs> okay. It's about 80 degrees and beautiful. Well, you like to be near the water because your career in life has been surrounded by water, and we're going to get into that in a moment because... You have a remarkable story. You've lived many stories in one life and you've had adventures. And in fact, 
pain and hardship that none of us may experience, most of it emotional, I would think. But I'm going to start by reading this, and you can pick it up from here. You were a man imprisoned unjustly, caught between two governments and several countries and several different cultures. You, in a sense, were abandoned by your own government, the U.S. government. Now, this sounds like a Tom Clancy or Dan Silva novel, yet this is your true life story of your sailing captain experience. Michael Churchward, it's amazing. You are also a renowned world yachting captain who broke several world records during your career. But we're not going to focus on that. We're going to talk about what happened and how you ended up in a prison in Turkey. My career was that of a uh, international large mega yacht captain uh, sailing around the world. On this particular where the, the story pertains to, we were cruising the Greek islands and the, the southwest Turkish coast, which I was very, very familiar with, having lived over there and sailed over there many years previously. And where the story really starts is we had pulled into a small Turkish port of Kushidas. They were familiar with me. We were dropping guests off and getting ready to pick up another group of family and guests of the ownership in, in, uh, in about four or five days. And they summoned me, they sent a Turkish officer to inform me they would like me to come down to the port police office, which was very unusual. They knew me, it was highly unusual for me to leave the ship. Anyway, I, I did so. To speed things up, I was soon detained, arrested, and charged with something that they would not tell us what it was. My name had come up on Interpol. Uh, through passport checks, very standard, and I'd already been through many, many <laughs> passport checks, you know, up to this point. They detained me, arrested me. I went through, went, was sent to a tribunal in the town, a uh, big judge setting up high and stamping papers and this repeating Cirque prison, Cirque prison. The next thing I know, I was thrown into the back of a, a, a small military van and driven inland to a military prison called Cirque. And that's really where the Odyssey started. Um, having said that, uh, then I, was in, I got caught in their prison system for something I didn't even know what I was charged with. Either did my family and my girlfriend, Stephanie at the time, who was the chef on board, uh, had been together many years. She got off the ship and stayed trying to find out what had happened. They wouldn't talk to her. Very, very scary. The first prison was Cirque, a Turkish military prison. Now, when you were in court, did you have an interpreter? No. No, I was taken. It was a very, very strange, strange setting. I mean, it had a very gothic feeling. The building was old. The judge was sitting way up high. And uh, no interpreter. Nobody was allowed into the courtroom. Stephanie was not allowed into the courtroom. And... They, Tur speaking Turkish, and then the next thing I know, the, the gavel was rapping and uh, the judge was saying, Cirque prison, Cirque prison, that's all I understood. And that, away I went. Did you have an opportunity to pick up any of your personal belongings or possessions, a bag, suitcase? Well, this is what happened, and it's very good, and I'll be brief on this because I do go into detail in the book. When I was detained in the, in the port police office, who I knew, I had known coming in and out of that port for many, many years. When I was summoned, I immediately took a minute, went back up into the pilot house and into the ship's safe and grabbed a wad of $100 bills, about $10,000, and stuffed them in my pocket. I knew sometimes, for no reason whatsoever, in a foreign port like this, and I was used to it, that you would have to pay a bribe to let us go about our business, and enough said. Well, that... I was very leery of that when the situation obviously became very grave and I, I really was concerned. I didn't do that. And because of the fact that, one, I was terrified that my vessel would be seized. And, if, and to me, that was unthinkable. That was not going to happen. And also, I didn't do anything wrong. So, but then once, once we, were, uh, we were detained, I was detained overnight. I was able to get that money back to Stephanie to get it back on board. And so forth. And then 
the the tribunal took place and 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 so forth. And no, I didn't grab anything what other than what I was wearing. So you must have been stunned, baffled, in an incredibly emotional state. Did you figure out what was going on eventually, how you got stuck with these charges? We did, but it took a couple of months. What took place right then in the next day, well, at, on my way to, uh, to Circuit Prison, the long ride inland, processed, brought into the commandant's office, Turkish guards with military machine guns, uh, you know, all around. And they wanted me to empty my pockets, be processed. Started doing that. Uh, the, this is what I understood. Nobody spoke English. Very sinister feeling. That's when my, the worry really, really got said. At that point, I stopped worrying about my vessel and started worrying about me. And conducted violent strip shirt, slammed against the wall, brutal. And then I was escorted across a, a compound to a cell, uh, about 20 by 20, <clears throat> excuse me, about 20 feet by 20 feet with 16 other Turkish inmates, four bunks stacked high to the ceiling, a hole in the ground behind a little cement wall that was the toilet. Within 24 hours, I, I, I was stunned. I was unconscious. My mental focus was staggered. I went from the captain of a mega yacht, a luxury mega yacht cruising the world Within 24 hours, I was thrown in, John, to the worst place you could imagine. That took a while to process. And so that we're clear, what exactly were you charged with? Eventually, we found out. It took a couple of months. Uh, State Department got involved. Media got involved. Many people got involved. But what it was, it stemmed from a, international, uh, a, war, a complaint by a man I worked for briefly out of, Tur- out of, excuse me, out of Greece. And he had accused me many years previously, six years previous to this event, of myself and this in the crew, my crew, of stealing his boat, which was a, a sailboat. It wasn't the kind I was used to running. And I, I had worked for him for about a year, and I was warned against him. Uh, uh, when I took the job, people on the waterfront knew of him. He filed a warrant, <clears throat> which was deemed illegal by the Tunis authorities and many other people along that way uh, when he sent me to the Caribbean with his boat, reported it stolen. And that's where the warrant originated and was still posted on Interpol. It raises some disturbing questions about the process that Interpol would accept that at face value. Well, you can report anything stolen. You know, whether he had to give proof or not, I don't know the process. But there were investigators from uh, my family solicited. Ross Perot got involved, investigated me thoroughly, realized who I was and where I come. I had a long history in the mega yacht industry and uh, something wasn't added up. Ross Perot and his people got involved and investigated the Greek, found out that he did have a history of fraud. And in fact, I was told it had done Greek time in the very prison that I ended up in. But uh, at the moment, it was an Interpol warrant. They had to follow the process. And that's where I was. This is Ross Perot, the late and former presidential candidate. It was a, some kind of a, a foundation he had. He did this pro bono for you? Absolutely free. What, what it was is, and I found out this much later in my family, connected with him through other people. And evidently, I never spoke to him personally. My family did. Was a terrific man in the sense that he had this group that wanted to help expats in trouble. And I was brought to his attention. His people did their investigation. And and then he decided to help me as much as he could. That's how things started to unfold from there. So this was in the early 1990s. All of these events occurred. When I worked for the Greek was in 1991 for one year. I took a, a leave of absence off a big vessel, came home. I was living in Athens, Greece, wanted to stay around home for a period of time, took that job with the Greek. But the events of my arrest took place six years later in 1997. What was his motivation to stick you with these charges, the Greek person? Well, that was talked about, investigated, and the determination that Ross Perot's people felt it, it was 
relate to my family was uh, insurance fraud. He had a history of it, and he thought there would not be, I would not be stopping when he sent us away debarkation papers all in order, which needed his authority from the port police, which was eventually shown in court once I finally got to court many, many months later in Greece. And, but he did not think we'd have engine trouble. We stopped in Tunis, detained. The Tunis authorities could not hold me or arrest me. They looked at all the papers, saw that they were absolutely in order, but they told me and my crew, just go home, leave the boat, go. This Greek reported this stolen. Um, That's what we did. Was this Greek ever publicly identified in court papers or in the public domain? That's a really interesting question. He was. He was. Uh, my boss at the time, Mr. R, who is a, I didn't, I didn't give his full name in the book. He also uh, was of huge wealth and a great friend to me and a great boss. Launched his own investigation into this man. And this is something I've never said, and I never said it in the book, and I hope you don't mind me just touching on this, that you bring it up. He ended up arranging a meeting with this Greek in London. The Greek wanted $250,000 to drop the charges against me. And this is why I'm still sitting in Turkey. One thing led to another. My, my Mr. R's people felt something wasn't right. This, this guy's not right. His reputation was slimy and so forth. And I had no problem saying that. He took a year of my life. Just before that meeting was to take place where the money was exchanged, Mr. R backed away, did not do it. And fortunately, he did, because as we later found out down the road, he had no authority to drop anything, nothing. He, he had no, nothing legally that he could ever do. He was trying to have another payday, which just really goes to show the type of individual we were dealing with. I mean, these are things that I found out much later. I did not know at the time they were happening, but that sets the stage for him. What was his cover job? What did he present himself to the world as? A businessman? A businessman. Yeah, see, uh, I'll tell you exactly what my impression was. And I was a younger man then, a middle-aged man, international playboy, threw a lot of money around, extremely loud and rude to the people close to him. That's what I witnessed on the boat. A dislikable character, I, I, I'll tell you flat out. But I, I stuck with him for that year. I liked the boat. And I, I had planned to get off once the delivery was completed. I was not going to stay with him. And I told him so. That was my impression. Take us to when you were taken to the prison in Turkey. Life was horrible there. And there was a lot of dodgy characters, I believe. Food wasn't exactly fine dining. No, 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 it wasn't. The first prison, Cirque, the environment was so incredibly stifling. We were allowed out into a small courtyard, about 45 minutes, an hour a day, very tiny courtyard, 16 Turkish inmates. Fortunately, I befriended one or he befriended me. No English spoken. I didn't hear English for many, many months. But he managed to communicate with me, protect me. Uh, well, and I write about that in the book. He was, he was a, great, a young kid, great, great guy in that respect as far as helping me. But the situation was awful. You know, as the weather turned, you know, the rainy season started to set in. When it rained, rats came in through the ancient building into the cell. The place would erupt into this big game and, and gambling on chasing down the rabbit, rats, killing them. I'm sitting up way up at the top in the top bunk just going, what on earth am I in? Terrible situations, terrible conditions, but it was nothing. It was good compared to where they took me next. Were you able to leave the compound in this first prison? Were you wearing prison clothes? No. What was the, the routine? And then we talk about the yeah. worst conditions you right. ended up in. Yeah, no, in these places, there certainly is no prison cantina. You are served a vat of soup in the morning and a vat of soup at night. And the first prison in Cirque, after several weeks, Stephanie had stayed there. God bless her. She tried desperately to try to get in to see me, to try to find out what was going on. Very high risk, long 
taxi rides that people promise release with with money, of course, the payout of money. And uh, but she finally got in to see me after a couple of weeks. I was able to be escorted out and looked through a small barred window. Saw her. She's crying. She was a wreck. She was able to do that two or three times while I was in Cirque. And then the final time where they would not release me, but we had, were under the impression they were going to release me. They did not, you know, two lawyers took a lot of money, did not do anything. $45,000 here, $30,000 there, nothing, nothing. Finally, she came to see me for the last time when I was in circuit before they transferred me. And I looked through that again. She was just, she was so thin and so gaunt. She was sick. And I, I just told her, I just, just go home, go home. I'll, I'll survive. I'll get out of here. And so she ended up going back to America and then, and then the odyssey continued. So where was the U.S. government at this stage? Initially, when I was arrested, Mr. R immediately got on to the American consulate. They came down to see me before I was sent to Sergei. And I've got to tell you, one was a very sweet Turkish-American lady. The other one was a, a Turkish-American man who I did not like. Immediately said, there's nothing we can do. Nothing we can do. You, you, you don't need a lawyer. I said, I want a lawyer. You don't need one. You're this was represented the U.S. Was U.S. government in the consulate in Ankara. I even named him in the book, and I won't bring that up now. But this man threw up roadblock. He assumed I had done something. His arrogance just absolutely sent me spinning. And it, and it played out that way. He was not a, a real good guy. But we, my family kind of moved past him as time uh, progressed. And then once I was transferred to Buja, the next prison, there, the consulate there in Turkey couldn't really do anything, never really came to see me. Really? That's amazing. And it's frightening to think that you were a U.S. citizen unfairly locked up. So only for you got this outside help, which ultimately led to your release. Where does that put other U.S. citizens who don't have the means and the wherewithal? I've thought a lot about that. And to be honest, I, I was so lucky because of the international support. And a few celebrities that I had befriended my travels on those big yachts got involved. Can you name any names here in terms of the, the celebrities? I can. I can because one, his picture's in the book with me. And two, he was such a great guy. He did everything he could possibly do. And I write about it in the story. Dustin Hoffman was, was in my corner big time. He knew people in Turkey high up. He immediately, once he surmised the situation, talked to my family and so forth, and he knew me. He ended up having me. I was on the front page of the newspapers. There are Turkish newspapers around the country on a daily basis for several months. I mean, high profile, huge media. The pressure had been put on the Turkish government. And a lot of it was because... Dustin Hoffman had initiated that. What was the coverage like in the U.S.? Very big, certainly in the community here in Fort Lauderdale, very well known. Front page of the local newspapers, Miami Herald, uh, and then other, obviously, other news media outlets picked up the story around the world. And uh, yeah, there was, there was a lot of pressure. That started to happen when they didn't release me from the first prison circuit. The British government decided they at least the way it looked to my family and everyone, and it felt that way, that they were going to hide me a little bit. So they transferred me to the infamous Buja prison in Izmir, Turkey. Tell us about that. I thought life inside Turkey prison was so diabolical, it couldn't have even gotten any worse. It got enormously worse in Turkey prison. Turkey prison... Is, is very infamous and, and, and well-known to Amnesty International as one of the very few pr prisons around the globe that are very highly suspected of, in, of human rights violations and abuses. And I, I witnessed it firsthand. I was uh, processed, escorted in the place. It took, they took me down through nine heavy steel lockdowns. And of course, the infamous strip search, always brutal and dehumanizing. 
once they started processing me and taking me deeper, deeper and down into like a dungeon-like atmosphere, wet, dirty walls, concrete walls, uh, screaming and yelling off the cell blocks by, by the Turkish inmates as they paraded me down to the last cell block, deep down, about nine lockdowns deep, and put into a cell block with a, a, a lot of different kinds of Kurdish, uh, Pakistanis, Iranians, uh, inmates. And I met guys down there, John, that were totally lost. Had been down there 10 years and never even saw a court. You're They're saying that they lost their mind. Lost to society, to the, to the world. They had never seen a court. Uh, quite frankly, they thought they were forgotten by the prison system that they were even there. Their families did not know where in that. You could not get visitations. You did not get mail. You saw no media. You got no TV, no radio, no nothing. You came in there and existed and held on to whatever you had. Nothing was given to you. And uh, scary, scary place. To protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen! By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. My guest is Michael Churchward, a world-renowned yachtsman who has a new book out, God Waits Outside, on his real-life story about how he suddenly found himself locked up in notorious prisons in Turkey and then Greece and his heart-thumping path to freedom. And all because of crimes he never committed. The saga didn't fully end when he regained his freedom in America. Michael will tell us about that too in a wee moment. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Were there a lot of innocent people, prisoners? I certainly met a few, but quite frankly, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the people I met on that journey through those three prisons in two countries, a lot of bad people, like flat out bad. That's what prisons are for, I guess. I don't know. But there right. was the handful of people that absolutely should not have been there. And I met a few of them. Yes. So what was daily life like? Did you have any entertainment, radio, TV, movies, walk out to the courtyard? Could you pick up a book to read? Any sports? No. No. In, <laughs> in Boucher Prison, Boucher Prison is a maximum security lockdown, man. And it's a deep, deep dungeon. It's known as the dungeon. And uh, you, were, you were thrown into cell blocks that branched off like fingers from the deep tunnel taking you down. I was thrown into one cell block with about 12 cells. The cells themselves were open. The cell block doors were locked. They didn't police the prisoners in Bouja. You're on your own. Fights, whatever. You were on your own. Were you, you ever know? afraid with our violent villains? Oh, God. Uh, let me back up a second because, quite frankly, one, no, there is no visitors. There is no news outlets. There is no TV. There's no There's nothing, nothing. And I was terrified thinking that my, nobody knows where I'm at. There's no way to communicate. And that's the case with everyone in there. There was no way to communicate with the outside world and then unless they let you. And that's, that's where I was. It's remarkable. So you were there and then there's another part of this story you ended up in Greece at some stage I did in leading up to that if I may say over the course of those that time in prison there was a man he was an Iranian drug smuggler he befriended me looked after me fed me it, it took care of me but I ended up getting a piece of paper from him and tried to smuggle out a letter to the American consulate people of course it got caught, uh, and I mentioned no human rights in the letter. Well, they brought me back up to the freaking commandant. So, I mean, they came in stormtrooping, grabbed me from my cell, ripped, 
dragged me back up there to the commandant side of us. He's screaming at me in Turkish. My letters are right in front of him, banging on the desk. And the next thing I know, they dragged me back down and I was thrown into solitary confinement in a, in a single dark cell that they kept the, the wood for the fire burning, you know, for the stove, excuse me, they, the wood burning stoves in the cell blocks. And that was, that was deep, deep, the deepest, darkest period of my life. People have mentioned to me, well, what did you get out of that? And I say it in the book, that was the darkest period of my life. And I, I look back now and I define my life as before that moment and after. And that is so true. If, that, if, you, if you can define one moment in your life, for me, that was it. Well, you title your book, God Waits Outside. How did you come up with the title and what's the meaning of that? That period that I just mentioned regarding deep isolation, uh, solitary confinement in this pitch black cell, I thought I was going to die. I thought that's where my life ends. And I'll tell you what, I, I caught myself maybe reaching that, that plateau of, you know, anger, all, all the emotions that I'm sure are well documented when a person is reaching its extreme limits, his emotional limits. And I was, you know, I was cursing at God and go, why did you do this? That whole number. When I went to write this story, thinking of that time, I tried to come up with a powerful phrase that would, that would be impactful. And what I came up with is the fact that this place was so bad, so inhuman that even God doesn't come into a place like this. He waits outside. That's where the title comes from. Take us through, and we'll come back to your faith in a little bit, because it did influence okay. how you dealt with it later on. Take us to, to sort of the conclusion and how you got exonerated. Right at that point uh, in solitary confinement, the Iranian drug smuggler, how he got in and sat outside the, the solitary confined cell because he, he could pay people. He, he, he was rich and he was taking a rest. But he ended up getting in to see me and quickly whispered, you're leaving. You're going to be leaving here. And how he knew that, I, I talk about it in the book, how he possibly knew that, but he had guards on his payroll and so forth. Anyway, I was extradited from Greece to Turkey. Or excuse me from Turkey to Greece, I'm sorry. And, and then I went through the process of feeling good about that because it was one step closer to perhaps getting to a court, prove myself innocent. And then I went through that process. I was in, in the Turkish prison for some time before that happened. So you ended up in Greece. What were conditions like there? I was processed into Cordelos prison, a big prison out on the outskirts of Athens. And uh, I was put in a cell block with about three other inmates in a big, huge cell block, three stories high, with three other inmates. The conditions were better. They weren't the squalor, the desperate squalor that existed in the Turkish prisons. But the prison itself was more dangerous, much more dangerous because of the exposure to one, to Albanian gangs that ran the prison, I got help there. I, I, I befriended a, a, a powerful inmate that really, really helped me. And as I mentioned in the book, and then eventually started clawing and finding my way with a, a Stephanie through to flew to Greece, helped me select a lawyer. And then that process started to try to get to a court. And you had to pay for this lawyer quite a considerable sum. Yes. Yeah. Everything's about money. And I'll, I'll tell you flat out because I lived it. These countries are so corrupt, it's scary. Now, they're beautiful countries, but their systems are unbelievably corrupt. We complain about our judicial system, and rightly so, there are flaws. But I'm telling you, when you are caught in a system where there's no due process, nothing, you and are mandated that you are guilty and you have to prove yourself innocent. There is no arraignment. There's no bail. There's nothing like that. You just have to wait your turn until you maybe get to a court, which in my case, I was told to get to a Greek court would take about two to three years. I went ballistic. I went insane. But because, one, who I was and the international pressure, and of course, 
money paid. I ended up getting to a court in a year, a little less than a year. How did you present your case? How did your attorney work with you and convince the system that you were an innocent victim? This is, this is very interesting, quite frankly, and scary. Uh, my family had produced this international letter campaign that was sent to the American ambassador's office, uh, so forth, the uh, media and all that. And it was unbelievably powerful. But also, we had the, the, the Greek documents of the, of the debarkation papers that cannot be stamped by the port authorities upon leaving a port with a Greek vessel without the authority of the Greek owner. That was proof, period. And they knew it. And my lawyer knew it. But my last meeting from him after several thousand dollars of being paid to him and a, a portion of it went to the tribunal judge that I came before. There were three judges that I was brought before. None of that material, none of those letters, none of the deparkation papers, none of the evidence accumulated was ever shown. Not one bit of it. Not one ounce. What they did was through a translator, brought before the court, and they asked via translator, what do I have to say for myself? They allowed me to speak. I told them flat out, this is wrong. I didn't do this. This is where I come from, so forth. And then they went away, came back, and the verdicts were, were laid down. There were several serious charges of major theft, uh, grand theft, that all, all dismissed. Innocent, innocent, innocent. And I'm, I'm looking back at Stephanie. She was in the courtroom. She flew to Greece with my boss's, Mr. R's lawyer, to witness all this. And I'm looking at them. I'm going, I'm going home. I'm going home. And it was almost a year. And then they said, one last charge. Misdemeanor mischief. Three years. I exploded in the courtroom. Uh, crazy, whatever. And that meant with time served. I'd have to stay there another 10 months. I told my lawyer, I can't do it. I can't. I'm going to die here. And things were happening. And I, I talk about it in, this, in the book. And um, so he ended up, there's one last thing we could do. We can appeal this. And uh, it's going to cost money. And I go, how much? How much? I'm talking to my lawyer in the visitor's room. He goes, well, it'll cost about another 10 grand. And I'm out of money. I mean, I went through my entire life savings sold two houses, two rental properties. Stephanie is like trying to keep our lives together. Anyway, he paid it. We paid him. And I ended up going to one more appeal court. And when it got to my turn and they never, I was told no foreigners ever released on appeal, uh, uh, released pending an appeal. And sure enough, they got, got to me and just said nay, meaning yes, that stamped the paper. And within, within a few days, I'm standing on a dirty, hot Athens street. And my, the conditions were, if I may say that, excuse me, John, they, I had to check into the police station once a week uh, that they would become, come looking for me. But there's no way, there's no way I was going to stay in that country. They took my passport and so forth. That started the, the next chapter of this odyssey. Which was you hightailed it. I did, but the first thing, I had a plan. I've been thinking about this for a while. And I knew Greece really well. I lived there a long time, in and out. And uh, I had a home there at one point. And uh, I spoke the language relatively good. And anyway, I immediately went to the American embassy in Athens. And they treated me so well, like a celebrity. They all came out because they, they knew my story. They had been getting phone calls for a year, letters for a year. I went in to see the ambassador, and uh, I can even name his name. I mean, I see him on TV now. Mm -hmm. You can name his name if you're comfortable. I am, and it's true. There's nothing wrong with it. Mm -hmm. Nicholas Burns was the ambassador to okay. Athens at the time. Mm -hmm. And he talked to me, and I told him, I need a passport. He said, well, it's against the Greek law. I, I, you know. Anyway, this went back and forth for like three hours. He, boom issued me, took photographs, issued me a U.S. passport with a piece of paper in it that said that 
you know, legally, I cannot leave the country blah, 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 under Greek law. I walked out the, I, I saluted the guard at the entrance. I walked out that, that embassy gaze and I'm just going, whoa. I ripped out that paper and then I immediately went to the downtown bus station in Athens. I knew how to get out of here. I took an overnight bus to the port of Patras on the very far west coast of Turkey, Peloponnese region, where the ferries go across to Ancona into Italy. And that's what I did. Got there, met these two English truck drivers that smuggled me on board in the back of their semi-truck deep down inside the ferry. Good for them. Oh, they were they were unbelievable. They're just there's happy go lucky. Did you English have to grease drivers. their palms? I, I I didn't. I didn't have any money. So <laughs> I, I'm, I, I mean, I had so little money. And but you know, when I met them, I saw they were drinking beers outside the ferry. I went, I knew those are the guys. I went right up to them because I was trying to figure out how I could get out through passport without checking passports. I went right up to them. They're drinking beer nine o'clock in the morning and uh, hot. And I just said, can I join you? They said, American, yeah. Said, yeah, sure. And I flat out told them my story. And they were just going, whoa. And I, you know, and they offered, they go, listen, they don't check our trucks getting on here. You know, now it's a different story. This is pre-2001, 9-11. That was pre-9-11. Yeah. Things were very different then than they are now. But they hit me in the back of their, their cab, drove on a truck, and then took the ferry across, man. And then I went through passport checking on the other side, breezed right through, made my way to Rome. My family had a ticket waiting for me. You ended up back in the United States and you had to rehabilitate yourself and adjust mentally, but it wasn't that easy. I got to tell you, I, I totally, I, I tried to understand what happened to me. I mean, my psyche was, was cracked. I mean, it was broken. And I, I had a hard time initially focusing. I was angry. Uh, all I wanted was my life back. And fortunately, Mr. R eventually employed me back on another vessel, but, but can, if I could tell you this, there were interviews or people that the community was wonderful, front page of the newspapers and all that. Three weeks after I was home, I was on waterfront dock with Stephanie. I talk about it in the book, it's very detailed, but guy pulled out a gun, tried to kill me, tried to shoot me, ended up shooting her. She stepped in front of me and shot her. It was three weeks after I'm home. Hurt her badly. She did not, it did not kill her, but severely hurt her. And then of course, the media were camped out in my front yard. It was a, it, it was a frenzy. Stephanie's in the hospital and so forth. So that was, that was a, a tough thing to deal with and get over. Uh, we eventually did you know, I cared for her. She, she was bedridden for many months, couldn't walk. And that set the stage for the last chapter of moving forward of that, of that odyssey. So, so that was a turning point. That terrible event left you in another state of mind. I'm not sure where I was, but I certainly was damaged. There's no question. And we both were in different ways, but yet the same. You know, she had, she had gone through hell herself this past year, trying to save me, trying to keep our lives together, uh, along with my family. But that, that definitely damaged me. But once she started to recover, once again, my hero, Mr. R, came to the rescue, called me up. Very wealthy man, a great, great man I'd worked for for many years, uh, running his yachts, had asked if I was able and willing to go down to Western Australia to look at a vessel, survey it, see if it was worth buying for him, and so forth. And I did. Uh, Stephanie was well enough to take care of herself. And I, I ended up staying down there for many months, refitting it, making it new, and then sailed her back, started sailing back, which was many months of, across the South Pacific, coming up through the Galapagos, Panama, Panama Canal, and then into Fort Lauderdale. You describe yourself as a man of faith, and I just wonder if you could explain to me how you see 
God in your life? Because you do title the book, God Waits Outside. I've thought a lot about that, John. I've thought a lot about that. At that moment where I came up with the title to this, in that dark, dark period, um, I, was, I was angry at God. He deserted me. And I told him. I told him right there in that dungeon. But being God, God is God. And what I realized as time passed, he, did, he came around and came in the back door of my life. I realized the one person I was angry at and talking to at that moment, albeit not praying to him, was God. Asking him, why did you do this to me? Why? What did I do? Knowing I was recognizing him, that he was in my life, I do that he will be in my life and kind of a little backdoor entryway. And then moving forward, I certainly believe in God. I believe in that. And I believe in really, really focusing and looking at on a daily basis, what's right and wrong. I mean, cause everybody has those decisions uh, frequently. Okay, this, this might not be the right thing to do for this person. I try mm-hmm. to, to concentrate as before, maybe I looked more self-centered, like, nah, this is good for me. I don't care type of attitude. I don't have that anymore. At least I don't believe I do. You were raised Catholic. Did that play any part in how you coped with this or had you fallen away from your faith by the time you were incarcerated? Well, I grew up a Catholic, Catholic, a lot of a big family, military family, real modest. My grandparents lived right across the street from the church. I served communion. I was an altar boy growing up. It was a part of me. I can't say that I am a churchgoer and that I am a devout Catholic. I'd be fibbing if I said that. But I definitely recognize the goodness in whether it be Christianity or being spiritual or trying to see see the good in the world, period. So you've believe in God and a higher power yes. and you believe in goodness. Yes, I do. And, and this, if I could, if I could go from that to where we were two minutes ago, perhaps had that epiphany where it became clear. We were, we had many, many months of, of refits and then sailing around Australia and across the South Pacific. We had landed in the islands of Galapagos for fuel. And I read about this in the book. There was a moment where I'm standing on the dock, watching the fuel processes, looking around these unbelievably mystical, beautiful islands, and it flashed on me. 18 months earlier, I was in, the, in these despicable foreign faraway prisons. Fast track 18 months later, I'm standing in a dock in the Galapagos, taking a boat across the South Pacific. And I just remember thinking, and I almost, I almost can remember verbalizing it, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Divine redemption. I was given something back, like in a big, big way that there was a time I thought it was lost. Period. So you were being tested by the man above. I I go, well, he put a pretty good test to me, man. He he threw a a freaking fastball at me. Uh, Maybe, maybe, you know, I, I tell you, and I have thought this and I do mention it in the book, that in my career growing up, I, I had a good life. Things always went my way. I, I a high school athlete, college scholarship, uh, ended up traveling and, and, and pursuing a career that I absolutely loved and was everything I had wanted. Perhaps that bump in the road, or I should say that real trench in the road, was maybe a way of balancing things out a little bit. Given me that humility, maybe I needed. You're talking about your career. It was quite a distinguished career. You worked for a lot of brilliant people and very successful people. Can you tell us a little bit about your career? Sure. Uh, I, I, I ended up getting into this. And a lot of people ask me this. Oh, how do you get it? Because the big, big mega yacht industry is a very tight fraternity. And particularly when you get to the captain area. Uh, but I ended up completely by a stroke of luck as a young man, I finished school and I was living in San Diego, a big yacht with a helicopter came in. I ended up getting a deckhand job on this yacht. At the time, I didn't know it, but was one of the most famous mega yachts in the world. This is like in the late seventies. That was on its way to Malaysia 
to be delivered to the king of Malaysia. I went with it. I worked there for two years. That company, that management company, took me to Monte Carlo, and I ended up being put on a huge mega yacht in Monte Carlo, hired as the first officer. I'm not even sure I was qualified, but I was hired <laughs> as the first officer. And the captain was a Welsh captain, John Hughes, a terrific guy. And uh, he hired me as his first officer on board Sheikh Yamani's yacht. Wow. Who was at, one, at that time was the Saudi oil minister, uh, Saudi Arabian oil minister. And then worked for him a couple of years. Then I ended up with a family, another Arab family who were terrific, had teenage boys. I stayed with that family a long time. And then I eventually made my way back to the States and still worked for uh, another Arab family from Kuwait. And then eventually I ended up being hired to build a mega yacht. I lived in England, built a very, very famous at that time was the most famous yacht that was launched, mega yacht, uh, built it in England, lived there two years, captained it for the following year. I ended up on the cover of all these magazines. And that's how Mr. R, who is in the book, in the story, saw me and found me. And once I met him, I uh, sure, I'll, I'll run your boats. And then Mr. I, R sounds like a great man. Well, Can you tell us any more about him or should we pick up the book? The book tells about just the kind of, in, I'll tell you, this may sum it up. One, Mr. R is incredibly wealthy, incredibly. All these. This is, where is his wealth from? Well, he was a businessman. I'm not sure I should say. Okay. But he, 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 he ran one of the largest, if not the largest private company at that time in, the, in America. But incredible wealth. But more importantly, I'm telling you, John, you sit, you sit and talk to him. He makes you feel like it's all about you. It's all about you. And I've watched him in these high-powered businesses on board the yachts. He'd conduct his business. People would come or people would come to meet him. And I'm telling you, you could see his charisma. He would hold court amongst these other wealthy people. But the key to it was is he would also go down to the local pub and have a beer with you. Hands down, period. He was man of the people. Hands man. And, and more, the most important thing that I loved about him and his family, he, every single time he'd have meetings or dinners on board, he would insist I come into the main salon, introduce me as a far better captain than I ever was. You know, this is Captain Churchward. He's, the, you know, he would build me up so much. It's, it, just the kind of guy he was, if you know what I mean. Treated you with great respect and dignity. Is Mr. Orr, has he passed on? No, he's still alive. Okay. I, I email with him periodically. Uh, he's, he's done, he sold all his boats. He, he may uh, not have liked me to have said, has he passed on? <laughs> but maybe I could rephrase that. Has he gone into retirement? Maybe we could yeah. look at it that way. Well, he's, he's well in his 80s. Um, and, uh, and I'm sure he's a big golfer. You know, he, uh, he, he's got a few homes around the world, but he, most of them are on golf courses and he, he's doing well. Well, got I got to say, we need more people like Mr. R. Very heartening and inspiring and, and uplifting to have a boss like that. If you were to look back at what you went through, it was excruciating, humiliating. And in some ways you were abandoned, maybe by your own government. Any lessons for U.S. passport holders abroad in dodgy lands who may find themselves in a situation like that? Good question, because uh, and I'll tell you real briefly um, that it's a well-known fact. If you are a foreigner in a foreign prison, if you can, you find the American embassy. Excuse me, the British embassy, not the American embassy, the British embassy. Um, there were all nationalities. Their main goal was to make contact with the British embassy because they're mandated to help all expats, all foreign, foreigners in foreign lands or foreign prisons. Our government, unfortunately, is not mandated to do that. They follow the host country's laws. And, and that's fine. But when you're wrongly imprisoned, it's freaking terrifying. My local congressman who was in the book and who was terrific at the time, uh, he's retired now, E. Clay Shaw, wrote mm. wonderful letters about me, uh, many congressmen did. But when I got home, he, um, he approached me and wanted me 
to come up and testify before Congress for just that fact regarding Americans caught abroad in, in situations. But uh, you didn't ultimately testify. No, oh, I didn't. I'm sorry. I should have said that. I didn't. Uh, I wasn't in the frame of mind. I wanted my life back. Looking back, I, I kind of wished I would have, but I was not in a good place at, the, at that time. God Waits Outside is your new book. You wrote another book about your events, but they were in, they didn't have the same level of granular detail. This is more three-dimensional. Maybe it's more philosophical and it's a great read. Thanks, John. Yeah, th- exactly right. The, the basic story is the same. Other than the fact, the new book is a much more complete book. It tells what happened after in detail. And I got to tell you, in writing this, I didn't plan to write this. I, I, uh, some people came to me and asked me to do so. And, and I produced an audible, which then spurred the whole book. I felt I was able to embrace it. I was healthier to really, really tell things that I was afraid and didn't want to tell in, in the first book. When you look at your events and your life and what you went through, do you ever get angry about the situation? Do you get angry at how this unfolded? I did. I did for a long time. I did for a long time. I don't anymore. And maybe that is the healing process. I made one mistake. Way back when I did get home and I, Mr. R saved my career, employed me again on other big vessels. For, um, but something was damaged. And, uh, and I was not really healthy. I was angry beyond belief intense in my job, driving people around me, you know, that whole number, because I felt I was giving something, giving something back. As time went by, and I made one mistake, I should have gone to see somebody, a professional, to explain what I was feeling. I thought I could heal myself. And I'll tell you what, I recognize mental illness, or even, because it's all relative, it could happen to anybody. You don't need a Turkish prison to feel that deep despair or that loss of hope. I didn't go see somebody I should have. And uh, as time passed, I got healthier and healthier and, and, and acquired a, a deeper understanding what, what happened to me. Well, that's terrific. You have mentioned them so often, and I'm fascinated by the role of Mr. Orr in this saga. And I'm sure a lot of people already know who he is, but some of our listeners won't. Can you... Can you possibly maybe describe him and give us his full name and what his companies were? Well, I prefer not to give his full name. But Mr. R is his last name. R is his first initial of his last name. But I wrote the story. Just let me get this clear. So that's his initial. Is that what you said? So he's kind of an anonymous figure, basically. He is from my storytelling and the way I put it in the book. But he is a real person, and he's still one of the wealthiest people in America. He is. And one of the most terrific people. We're going to say thank you, Mr. R. here. Thank you. Because I tell you what, John, if I could say this, if he ever hears, he knows how I feel about him. I love him to death. He, uh, He was the most influential man I've ever had by far in my life for many different reasons. He saved me and my career. Because one gave me his trust. What more can you say? What more can you say? He, he, good man, a real, real good man. What's next up for you in your life? Where are you at? Well, I uh, live down in Palmer Beach, on the beach. The book is gaining traction. Uh, it seems to have generated a lot of interest, uh, which there was a time where I was terrified of that. Now I'm trying to embrace it a bit with, with some humility, some humbleness, but it's it's been received terrifically. So we'll see where that takes me. I'm not sure. But at the moment, I'm trying to embrace it. Well, Michael Churchward, you've come out of this in great shape, I must say. You, you're philosophical. You have your sense of humor and you have your whole life ahead of you. It's been a great pleasure talking to you today. And we'll catch up again very soon. And the name of the book is God Waits Outside. Thank you, John. Thank you very much for having me. 
You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.